0: This is The Roundstable. All right, welcome back, Table listeners. Uh, This week, we are talking a little bit on semaglutide and a little bit on enoxaparin. They're both kind of injections, but the first trial is not of an injectable semaglutide. So we are themeless. John, what article do you have up for us first?
1: Uh, so for our themeless episode, first, we'll talk about oral semaglutide, 50 gram taken once per day in adults with overweight or obesity, the OASIS-1 randomized control trial. This was published in Lancet, August 2023 by Nop et al.
0: Yes, and I met this first author when I was in Copenhagen. I think uh first name is Philip, very cool guy, Like just like you sort of prototypic, like cool, Dane. Uh, that's Philip. So wicked to see that he's, you know, published a really impressive trial. Anyway, John, what was the research question here?
1: Yeah, well, it's a pretty cool question. It is, what is the efficacy and safety of oral semaglutide for treatment of overweight and obese adults without type 2 diabetes? And why was this important? Uh well I mean you and I and the rest of the world have heard of semaglutide in another name perhaps as Ozempic and I don't even what are they calling like the uh, for obesity indication, Wigovi or Wijovi, whatever it is. But we know that semaglutide has really been a game changer for weight loss. Patients can lose know, 15 to 17% of their body weight on average, but of course it is a once weekly injection. Um, there's a consideration for whether or not oral options might help facilitate uptake as there are estimates that only about, you know, one to 3% of people who would be eligible for anti-obesity medications, including things like semaglutide, actually receive them. There is pretty reasonable data to show that oral semaglutide has similar bioavailability to the injection. Uh, And so these guys wanted to study, well, what is the benefit in the setting of uh, using oral semaglutide for overweight and obese adults without type
0: two diabetes? All right. And what was the study design here?
1: Uh, This was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, phase 3 superiority trial. There were 50 outpatient centers in Asia, Europe, and North America. Patients were aged 18 or older, BMI at least 30, or they could have had a BMI from 27 to 30 if they also had certain weight-related complications, things like hypertension, diabetes, OSA, cardiovascular disease. And they also had to have had an attempt at some prior weight loss before. There were a few exclusion criteria, including if there was a change in body weight, five kilograms or more in the 90 days before screening. They also excluded people with previous or planned weight loss surgery, uh, as well if you had- type 2 diabetes, uh, you're excluded. Patients were randomized one-to-one to oral semaglutide, and the maintenance dose was 50 milligrams or a visually identical placebo. It was given daily for 68 weeks, and there was also an adjunct of lifestyle intervention that was given to both arms of the study. When it came to the lifestyle component, uh, it included counseling, uh, but also you know, a 500 kilocal deficit in a caloric intake per day, uh, as well as a physical activity of at least 150 minutes per week. Now, with the oral oral semaglutide dosing, kind of like the injection, you do start at a lower dose. So there was a kind of an up titration that they had done starting at three milligrams, then up titrating every four weeks, the max dose of 50 milligrams for the outcomes. So there was a co-primary endpoint and that was the percentage change in body weight from baseline to week 68, as well as whether participants reached at least 5% body weight reduction from baseline to week 68. There were a number of secondary outcomes, things like uh, physical functioning scores, some metabolic features like A1C, uh, blood pressure measures, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, they also looked at safety things from an adverse event perspective, and this was an intention to treat study.
0: All right, so double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of oral semaglutide for adults age 18 and up, BMI of at least 30, and they couldn't have diabetes, they couldn't have upcoming you know, surgery A plan for their weight loss, and they were followed for 68 weeks and a primary outcome essentially related to the change in body weight. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: All right. And what did the patients look like?
1: So from September to November, 2021, they screened 709 participants and ultimately 667 were randomized to either oral semaglutide or placebo. Uh, 82% of patients completed treatment and 76% were able to get onto that maintenance dose of 50 milligrams. So average age was about 50 years. Body weight on average was 105 kilograms. The average BMI was 37.5, 74% of the patients were white and 73% were female. They had a number of comorbidities. So 46% had hypertension, 40% had dyslipidemia, 14% with OSA. And then, you know, the majority, because, you know, as you might recall, you could have been either a BMI over 30 or a BMI from 27 to 30 with comorbidities, but the majority of the patients here, 613 qualified based on that BMI over 30 alone.
0: Okay. And 613 divided by how many patients? Oh, like almost all of them.
1: Pretty much all of them. So 667 are randomized.
0: Gotcha. Okay, cool. And what did they
1: find? The main finding was that those on semaglutide had a 50 50- percent reduction in body weight at week 68 compared with 2.5% reduction in the placebo group. Uh, looking at the percentage of weight loss, 85% of patients in the semaglutide group versus 26% in the placebo group lost more than 5% of their body weight. And then you know the numbers are just even more impressive for larger percentages of their of their body weight as you might expect. So for example, 69% in the semaglutide group lost 10% or more of their body weight compared with only 12% in the placebo group. For the secondary outcomes, you know not the main. Focus, but some interesting findings. You know, there were improved physical functioning scores. They found improved blood pressure control, lower A1C, as you might expect as well. Uh, when it came to safety, so 92% of patients did report adverse events in the semaglutide arm but 86% of patients in the placebo group also reported adverse events. There was certainly a signal though that from a serious adverse event perspective, no major difference, 10% in semaglutide versus 9% in placebo. But there were higher rates of mainly GI side effects uh, in those taking oral semaglutide. And that included things like nausea, vomiting, constipation, diarrhea, and they did tend to peak at around the maintenance dose phase. There was a signal as well that they looked at for rates of neoplasm. And um, there was a question if there might have been a slightly higher rate of both benign as well as malignant neoplasms, 9% in the semaglutide arm versus 5% in the placebo group.
0: All right, gotcha. So, I mean, incredible weight loss, some adverse events for sure. There is this sort of lingering question about whether or not GLP-1 analogs might be associated with an increased risk of certain malignancies in particular particular what I've seen is thyroid. But anyway, this is a randomized trial. It's relatively small and it's all about the primary outcome. Anyway, any main limitations here?
1: I mean, I think this is a really well-designed study. You kind of already commented on one. It was a relatively smaller trial, all things considered, but hey, like 15% is quite an impressive finding. And I think they did a good job uh, in the design of the study itself. As with all of these weight loss studies, we don't really know what happens in the future, uh, both from like a weight maintenance perspective. Like, you know, are people probably gonna have to be on semaglutide for the rest of their life or not? We don't know that answer. Uh, we also don't know about that, that question from For like the neoplasm signal, because I think you're right. Maybe it's like a black box warning specifically for a type of thyroid malignancy that was most I think it was actually detected in like an animal study of all things. But nonetheless, and in the news, I don't know if you saw this, but comment about suicidal ideation being more common among semaglutide users. For what it's worth, in this trial, they found no difference from a psychiatric side effect perspective, which I think is important. The other kind of not so much a limitation, but just maybe a reality of the medication itself is that one, you've got to uptitrate the dose. I mean, of course, you had to do that with injection semaglutide anyways. But with the oral maintenance dose, it has to be done in a fairly particular way. So you have to take it with no more than half a glass of water with no other food or oral medications for at least 30 minutes. Otherwise, it limits its effectiveness. Um, And so it just makes you wonder, like in the real world, for patients who have other comorbidities and take other medications and can't take the drug as precisely as they would in the trial, might we see perhaps not the 15%? Maybe it's going to be less, but still, I think we'd still see a fairly impressive weight loss.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And you're right. So the specific malignancy was a medullary thyroid cancer identified in rats. Um, So, you know, whenever there's a signal for cancer in these preclinical studies, uh, definitely that's going to show up on the drug label. So, you know, that warning exists for if you have a family history of medullary thyroid cancer, this is probably not the drug for you. Uh, It's a pretty rare cancer though. And they already have on the label, the warning about suicidality and symptoms of depression they have that for almost every drug for for um, obesity because they know how commonly those symptoms exist for individuals who have obesity regardless of whether or not they're getting a medication anyway what's the take-home point here
1: so the take-home is that oral semaglutide leads to significant weight loss compared with the placebo for patients who do not have diabetes yeah incredible stuff and is this practice changing this is going to be practice changing. I'm sure, you know, it's a pill. I guess the big question is what about cost? Cause that's going to be important. The other thing too, just thinking out loud is I wonder actually what would have better compliance, you know, is it easier to actually just take a once a week injection instead of taking a pill every day? I, I don't really know how that might play out for what patients would prefer and what they'd be able to adhere to.
0: Yeah. I kind of find there are certain patients who are just like, nope, I hate needles. I'm not going to take needles. End of story, no needles. So uh, for those ones, I'm like, okay, well then let me tell you more about SGLT2 inhibitors. So I, I kind of think this will be an option for patients who are needle averse uh, or just individuals who want to be on this drug and like the, so- the sounds of a pill better than an injection. Anyway, incredible stuff. And you know, this has been all over the news. Of course, the manufacturers are Nova Nordisk based out of Denmark. And they're like single handedly, um, raising up the nation's GDP. Um, the, the drug company has reached like blockbuster status and it's like, um, they, they single handedly are like the biggest economic driver now in Denmark. That
1: is pretty amazing. Oh my goodness.
0: Pretty wild stuff. Anyway, changing gears. Um, this study was from Europe. So maybe that's sort of what connects the two. Uh, This was enoxaparin versus placebo to prevent symptomatic VTE in hospitalized older adult medical patients, the symptoms trial. Uh, And this was published in Evidence in 2023. Okay, great. What was the research question here? Among medically ill hospitalized patients, does a low molecular weight heparin reduce the risk of venous thromboembolism? Wait a second.
1: You mean we don't know the answer to this already?
0: Uh, Why is this important? we hand out dvt prophylaxis all the time on the medical ward if you look at the data it's like pretty darn lousy one of the first ever studies published back in the mid 90s certainly showed a reduction in the risk of vte if you got an oxyparin. but the devil's in the details it was predominantly like distal um, completely asymptomatic vte and also These were sick, sick, hospitalized medical patients with a hospital length of stay of at least six days. Um, Lots of our patients on the GIM ward do not fall in that bucket. There's lots of patients who aren't all that sick, but they're in hospital. There's many patients who leave within a few days. So if you look closely at the data, it's frightening how bad it is. I would say there are important exceptions. If you come in with COVID, absolutely, you're going to benefit from DV2 prophylaxis. If you are truly sick... Absolutely. If you have had an acute stroke, there's very good data to show that DVD prophylaxis is effective. But for the rest of the GIM patients, the data are shaky.
1: Okay. Well, this is going to be a really important question. And, you know, anecdotally, a lot of the patients I ask me, like, why am I getting injected with this stuff, Doc? And I try to explain, well, it's to lower your risk, but let's see, does it actually lower your risk of getting a DVT? So first, what was the study designed?
0: Yeah, but it's an important anecdote because I remember when I was a first year resident at St. Mike's, we had a patient who came in and um, she was a physician and she refused DVD prophylaxis. And I got a message from the nurse saying, hey, they're refusing DVT prophylaxis. Can you come talk to them? And like, here am I like a freaking R1. And, you know, she's a staff physician, been working for like 30 years. And she's like, no, I'm not taking that. And I was like, oh, OK, but it's recommended to reduce your risk. She's like, no, I'm not taking it. And it was interesting because then when we talked about that patient in rounds, we described them as like, oh, they're being difficult, but were they being difficult or were they right? Anyway, I'm going to give you some data. So this is a double-blind placebo-controlled multi-center, randomized trial across 40 sites from 2015 to 2020 in France and Switzerland. Here's the sort of PICO framework for the research question. So it was adults age 70 plus admitted for an acute medical condition, inclusion criteria, they had an anticipated length of stay of at least four days and a life expectancy of at least three months, exclusion criteria, a contraindication to low molecular weight heparin, like they're actively bleeding, a platelet count less than 80, if they needed anticoagulation for some other reason, or if they were on concomitant aspirin or Plavix or creatinine clearance of less than 15, intervention, anoxaparin, 40 milligrams daily for a minimum of six days and a maximum of 14 days the comparator was placebo. The primary outcome was symptomatic VTE at 30 days. Um, It could be distal or proximal uh, DVT, uh, in addition, of course, to PE. Uh, The timeline was 30 days for the primary outcome, 90 days for secondary outcomes. And they planned and intended to recruit 4,600 patients, but the trial ended early after 2,600 because of drug supply issue and slower than anticipated recruitment
1: okay one question for you and when it came to that minimum of six days could that have included if you were then discharged home like did you take it for like two more days
0: exactly so if you left on day four you'd be sent home with a two-day supply of enox or uh, a needle that looked like enox but wasn't enox sounds good uh so what did the patients look like average age of 82 years 60 percent were women uh nearly half were on an antiplatelet agent um you know, 38% had a GFR of 15 to 50, median length of stay was eight days, median treatment duration was seven days. They also gave some nice details on the reason for admission. So uh, most common was acute infection at 20%, uh, loss of consciousness, fall or fainting at 20%, um, acute respiratory frail- failure at 15%, or general health deterioration at 10%, which is a nice way of saying Something that I won't say. Um, So that's what the patients looked like.
1: Uh, Okay, what was the main finding?
0: So their primary outcome of VTE at 30 days occurred in 1.8% in the Enox arm and 2.2% in the placebo arm. That's an absolute difference of 0.4% with wide confidence intervals that crossed the null. You might be asking yourself, what type of events were these? So in each study arm, there's about 22 events in the Enox arm. 27 events in the placebo arm, half of them were PE, and they had similar rates of major bleeding at 1% between the two study arms.
1: Interesting that it would have been PE is the bulk of all events. Uh, Okay. Um, What are some of the limitations here before we kind of talk about what the take-home is?
0: So it was obviously smaller than they had anticipated. This was an event-driven trial. So they hoped to have 70 events total, but instead they had that like 22 plus 27, which is 49 events. So they were clearly shy of that. And of course, their sample size was smaller uh, than anticipated. And a really nice rule of thumb that I learned when I was a master's student, ideally in any study, randomized or otherwise, it's nice when you have at least 30 events in each arm it just gives a lot of stability to the point estimate and how much you can sort of rely on these results so anyway they fell short of that obviously but it was double blind it was placebo controlled this was done on gim ward this is really freaking impressive but that of course is the number one limitation here
1: okay what's your take on point
0: enoxaparin does not reduce the risk of VTE uh, for older adults uh, hospitalized on a general medical ward with uh, acute medical conditions
1: Ah, uh, jeez okay it's and it's tricky because like it's almost like you want the data to work could you say like there's a signal towards reducing the rate like uh, what are we doing here does this change your practice
0: yeah so I think my bias lies a little bit more towards I think, This is an ineffective treatment in the first place. So maybe that's why I don't interpret the results of, hey, there might be a reduction in 0.4%. Because I think right now, at least in Toronto, almost everyone gets DVT prophylaxis. I think that's wrong. Okay, I think that's really wrong. If anything, we can use the results of this trial. And if your patient ticks the boxes, over 70, acute medical condition, they're not on an antiplatelet, you know, they're, and they have a life expectancy of at least three months, then even in this patient population, it's unlikely there's a large benefit. Maybe there's a small benefit, but there's a known risk of bleeding and getting stabbed in the belly every day or multiple times a day.
1: Yeah, I guess we've got to rethink what we're doing
0: here. Jeez. Yeah, so the, the majority of patients when I'm on team, I sort of walk around stopping their DVT prophylaxis, starting an SGLT2, starting some agglutide, and I go about my day. Anyway, that is it for our two studies. Uh, On to the good stuff. John, what caught your eye?
1: Uh, Well, this, usually I try to do something not medically related, but in this case it's medically related and hopefully it's not just a big like news blitz with nothing to show for it. But there's been a press release that there's this new anticoagulation that targets factor 11 of all things. The trial was looking at patients in AFib and it had to be stopped early due to overwhelming in quotation marks reduction in bleeding for patients with AFib. Um, So the drug itself is called abalicimab. I wonder, and I hope that we'll be talking about this in one of our future episodes. So stay tuned for more.
0: Yes, this is a very drug company move. Um, they're always happy to put out these press releases when the drug works. When it hurts, they are silent, (laughs) absolutely silent. So there's a little bit of funny business that goes on with this. Um, Ushma Purohit, who's a resident in Toronto, um, she led this study looking at how often this occurs. I just put in the chat uh, for press releases, preempting the peer-reviewed manuscript. How often does this occur in big-time journals? How often do the results differ between the press release and what actually came out? And some other cool points. But I agree with you. It's very. It looks. Freaking impressive, for sure.
1: Hey, maybe my good stuff will be this paper. Good on you guys; it looks really good. Let's put the the link to it uh, on the website as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was all uh, Ushma and team. Um, my good stuff is truly nothing medical. Uh, this uh, great DJ; uh, his name is Chris Luno. Um, I thought he was maybe Danish, but no, he's German. But that's okay. Um, I'll put his YouTube channel in the uh, website, I guess, and uh, just like terrific music to work to, uh, definite house electro feel to it. So that is the good stuff that I have to share today.
1: Pretty good. I will have to listen to it while I uh, check out my Trial Files episodes. Uh, I did finally sign up for it the other day. I don't know if you saw my email or not.
0: <laughs> nice, John. Yeah, the, the Trial Files has been, it's been a lot of fun. We're. I was chatting with Zane, who you know, um, we're about to release an IBD Trial Files uh, and then a nephro trial files because you can really lather rinse repeat once the wheels are up and running nice all
1: right mike well thanks for this we'll talk again
0: soon awesome take care john
1: the rounds table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. follow us on twitter at rounds table thanks to our audio editors emilio garcia flores and arjun sharma also thanks to amol verma founder of the rounds table and kieran quinn the previous director We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, Editor-in-Chief at Healthy Debate for all the support.